the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning to you. And I just want to thank this church family for the opportunity to uh, be here and, and just for your warmth and hospitality. And even when I had a chance to visit a few years ago during our sabbatical, uh, th- we had made just a, a number of visits to, to churches in the Bay Area. And, and I have shared this with uh, Pastor Roger and, and my wife and I were just talking about how uh, this church is probably one of the most friendly churches that, that we had a chance to, to attend. And so we're just thankful just for the love of Christ that you have shown us and that you continue to show to one another. I want to express my appreciation uh, to Pastor Roger just for the opportunity to come back again and share God's word with you. Uh, I'm thankful to walk with you, my friend, uh, your family, uh, your church family um, these last two weeks. And, um, and honestly, I've just been so encouraged um, by uh, your and, and Jenny's faith uh, in the midst of your suffering. And I think in many ways, um, I just wanted to say thank you for ministering to me as I hoped uh, really in me being here and just ministering to you and just to your church. And so thank you for the encouragement. Uh, well, Pastor Roger was uh, gracious to allow me to tag team with him uh, in doing a Christmas related message. And so if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter one. And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter one, and I'll read the text for us uh, and then uh, we'll have a short prayer and then we'll get into the word, right? Matthew chapter one, uh, beginning of verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come before your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts ready and eager to receive your word this morning that we might be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. On January 12, 2007, Joshua Bell went to the Washington DC Metro station and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash bin. By all accounts, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, long sleeve t-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. And from a small case, he removed a violin. 
and placing the open case at his feet, he threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money. He turned it to face pedestrian traffic and he began to play. For the next 45 minutes in the DC Metro, Bell played classical pieces by the likes of Bach and Mozart and Schubert as over a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. And yet, had they stopped, they might have recognized the world-renowned violinist who was Joshua Bell, who was taking part in an experiment by the Washington Post. Had they stopped, they might also have noticed the violin he played was a rare 18th century Stradivari worth over $3.5 million. Had people stopped, they would have realized that just three days before, Joshua Bell sold out Boston's Symphony Hall with his concert, where average seats were going for over $100 a ticket. And yet on that Friday, Bell collected $32 by the 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. For on that cold day, this virtuoso with this $3 million violin was just another beggar, largely unnoticed, unrecognized, hidden in plain sight as he competed for the attention of busy people on their way to work. The story reminds us of what happens all too often during the Christmas season with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ. We can get caught up in the busyness of shopping and gift exchanges, Christmas cards, traveling, decorations, the holiday parties, baking, and family time. Yet for all these activities, much of the world hurries through this time of year and Jesus is largely unnoticed, unrecognized, and hidden in plain sight. The question before every one of us is, have you noticed him this season? Have you paused and and stopped from the busyness of life? Have you turned your thoughts toward Jesus and made much of him this time of year? See, as believers, we know we're not immune to this. Like everyone else, we can go through this season and absolutely miss Christ despite us knowing that he should be the focus of the season. And I know this is, this is true of me. Uh, and I'll be honest that it's been hard this year for me to set my heart's attention on Christ simply because life happens. And I find myself being distracted by all these other things. Christmas often comes and goes and we've, give, we've given no more than just a passing glance to the Savior with maybe a little bit of time to spare. And that's why I'm thankful for a morning such as this, where we can be reminded together as a body of believers to stop, to notice, and to focus on Christ once again. And my hope is that we would set our thoughts and hearts upon Jesus to remember his coming that first Christmas day. And that it would cause us to love him more passionately and worship him more deeply. And it's what I want to do with you this morning, Grace Church, in light of Advent season. And so for our time, we turn to the familiar Christmas story found in Matthew chapter one to help us to that end. And so we're going to take more of a theological approach to this text 
and learn about who is this Christ of Christmas. There are four truths about Christ that I want to draw for us from this text. And if you're taking notes, the first truth that we learn about is the eternality of Christ. The eternality of Christ. The text begins in verse 18 with this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word used here for birth is where we get the word Genesis. And already we have an indication that Matthew's account is not some, le- not some legend or myth, but is in fact rooted in history concerning Jesus. Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus's Genesis, his origin story. We all love origin stories, right? I especially love superhero movies and, and learning about their origin. And it is so popular right now because there's a certain intrigue about knowing about someone's past and how they came to be. And it gives us deeper insight into who they really are. But here is where Jesus's beginning is different from anyone else's. Because Matthew goes on to say this, that this is the origin of Christ, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, namely Jesus, from the Holy Spirit. What makes Jesus' story unique is that his story doesn't actually begin here in Bethlehem. There's a, a prequel as it were, to the Christmas story. And what's alluded to by Matthew is that the story of Jesus begins from before time. That long before his birth, Jesus already existed. And that's the context for how we're to understand this account. See, when we come before the Christmas story, we begin with the fact that Jesus is the eternal son of God. And the uniqueness of his birth into this world as told by Matthew would be an indication of this. Understand that the emphasis in this account isn't so much on the birth of Jesus, which was natural, but it's on his conception, which was supernatural. Matthew is describing for us the miraculous conception of Jesus, where Jesus existing already as the eternal son of God takes on human nature and becomes man on that first Christmas day. I'm highlighting a point that is subtle in this text and yet is absolutely foundational to who Jesus is and how we're to understand this birth account. See, Matthew is impressing to us what is taught elsewhere in scripture that before Christ was born into this world, he was God. And there was never a time he was not God. He always was. He is the pre-existing God who existed before time. The Bible clearly teaches about the eternality of Christ. The apostle John spoke to this in his gospel, where he says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The word referenced here by John is Jesus. And by way of John saying in the beginning was the word assumes that he was already there from the beginning. Or in other words, for John to say in the beginning was the word is to say the word who is Jesus has no beginning. 
And that is a quality that only belongs to God. Hence, Jesus is God. Now, are you following here? See, beginning is a word that can only apply to things created. And God doesn't fall into that category because he is not created. He is self-existent. He is eternal. And that is what makes God, God. When I was younger, I would ask my parents, mom and dad, where did God come from? And I vividly remember them telling me to, to look it up in the dictionary, right? And then the problem was I, I couldn't read. And so I didn't know the answer for a long time. But it's a question that many kids have. And here's the thing. As a child asking this question, where did God come from? That simple question comes from an understanding of this concept of cause and effect. That the source of my existence comes from something. That I had a beginning from something else. See, all of us here, we are the effect of some cause, namely our parents, and they in turn their parents and so forth. The child who asks this question knows that everything around him comes from something other than itself. And the child simply extends that concept towards God. And all children, when asking that question, is asking a philosophical question. He or she is thinking in terms of this universal paradigm. And yet, the child must be told that God has no beginning. Jesus always existed. And if you were to explain to that child that if you were to view the entire history of the universe as a long chain of cause and effects, like dominoes placed in a line, the finger that knocks down that first domino is God. And in this way, God is different from us because you see that finger has always been there. God exists in himself. He has no origin. He has no other cause or is contingent upon anything else for his existence. Or in other words, he is the first cause. He is the uncaused cause. And it is, again, what makes him eternal. And it is why he is God. And the gospel writers are applying this to our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is in very nature God. He is the great I am, he declares. He is the one who knows no beginning nor no end. See, the the Christmas story begins there in heaven and not on earth. The eternal God who existed before time would break into our time and space and take on human nature. Now, what Matthew proceeds to tell us is how did this take place? How does this happen? Well, he leads us into the second point here about the incarnation of Christ. From the eternality of Christ, Matthew leads us to the incarnation of Christ. And what that is when we talk about the incarnation of Christ is we we sing about it in our songs, especially this time of year. It's simply the act of Jesus, who is God, taking on human nature. And we sing a familiar Christmas song about this, Heart the Herald, angels sing, right? And there's a line in it that that goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, that's the word there, deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That line captures what the incarnation means and what it's about. And really that is the essence 
of what Christmas is. It's about when God became flesh. Jesus, fully God, will now become fully God and fully man because he takes on our nature. See, the Christmas season is also called Advent season. And Advent simply means to come or to arrive. And so Christmas is a celebration of the first Advent, the the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how does God, who is spirit, come into our humanity? Matthew explains. And we'll see how this process has great implications for us. We go back to our text and we're told that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Now in ancient Israel, betrothal was a much more binding version of engagement than in Western societies today. And it was so binding that Matthew already calls Joseph her husband. Now Matthew tells us that in their betrothal, they had not come together, meaning that they were pure, they were sexually abstinent, they they were saving themselves for marriage and they had not been intimate. And yet Mary, we're told, was somehow found to be pregnant. She is found by Joseph to be with child, it says in verse 18. And so you can imagine just how devastating this this was for, for Joseph. A righteous man, we're told. He had protected her purity, had never been with Mary, but it appears that she had been with someone else. That his bride to be was carrying a child that was not his. And so in every moral and legal way, Joseph had a right to end that betrothal. And so we're told in verse 19 that Joseph sought to divorce Mary quietly. Joseph could have exposed Mary to shame, but he knew that at least a quiet divorce would afford for her some preservation of her dignity. She would bear the consequences of her actions, but she wouldn't necessarily have to suffer the public humiliation of it. And so we're told that as Joseph resolved to do these things, It says that as he was pondering his decision, thinking about all of these things, he falls asleep. He falls asleep. And in verse 20, we read this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel makes a second appearance in this account first to Mary and now to Joseph in a dream. And what the angel does is he confirms what was spoken to Mary, that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, that the child in her womb is none other than the son of God. He has no earthly father, but a heavenly one. And that Joseph was not afraid to take Mary as his wife. Thank you, Sean. So why was all of this important? Think about this. Why was that significant of how Jesus is incarnated and taking on human nature in this way? See, in God's wisdom and plan, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for his humanity to be without sin. Christ being born in this way will not inherit sin in this human nature. Now, what do I mean by that? Paul tells us something very important in Romans chapter five, and he establishes this this fundamental truth. 
And he says this in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. What the Bible teaches is that because of Adam's sin, every person born into this world is born as a sinner by nature. All human beings have inherited legal guilt and, and, and a corrupt nature from their first father, who is Adam. It's like this. It's like a stain. And the stain of sin has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so this would apply to Jesus' situation. If Jesus was born of natural parents, then he would be born a sinner like all other human beings before him and after him. And as such, he would cease to be God. But not only that, he would need a savior for himself because he was a sinner. And he could not have made atonement for our sins. See, the whole human race from Adam onward is born under the curse of sin. So to redeem that race from sin, Christ had to be identified with our race in our humanity. He, he had to be man. And yet, in order to save us, he had to be sinless man. And so he needed to have at least one human parent or he would not have shared our humanity. Now, here is the wisdom of God and the significance of him being conceived by the Holy Spirit. That through his virgin birth, Jesus was able to be born without a human father. And that act, what it did was it interrupted the transmission of sin from person to person from the time of Adam to Joseph. And the Spirit's overshadowing or, or coming upon Mary, as Gabriel says, prevents the transmission of sin from Mary. And so Mary would conceive miraculously through the Holy Spirit. The, the Lord would be born fully human and yet sinless and still fully God. Let me tell you, this is why we, we just can't gloss over the virgin birth and go straight to the cross. Because it was absolutely necessary for Christ to assume a sinlessness in his humanity. See, the glory of Christmas is this, that Jesus in fullness of deity, he stepped down from the glories of heaven to earth to a lowly, humble, human and yet divine birth in a miraculous way. The question that leads us to is why? Well, thirdly, Matthew tells us about the mission of Christ. See, the Lord came in such a way for a particular mission. And so what was that? The angel continues his announcement to Joseph and he says this in verse 21. He will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What's in a name? Everything. Now, somewhat of a name significance is lost in our culture, but in biblical times, a name meant something. It spoke to your identity. It marked your purpose in life. And this was true of Christ. In this birth narrative of our Lord, a very significant thing happens and can be so overlooked the angel gives instruction to Joseph in verse 21 and says, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their 
sins. The name Jesus is a Greek form of the name Joshua. Yeshua is this Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name. And it simply means Jehovah saves. And this ultimately defined the purpose and coming of our Lord into this world. He came to save. See, that was his mission. And this would have struck a chord in the hearts of these Jews who heard this. Because they thought that if there was anyone who needed saving, it was us. It was God's people. It was his treasured possession. See, their history had been marked by exile and slavery and oppression from foreign nations. But the teaching of the Old Testament pointed to the day of the Messiah who would come and deliver them. And everything would be different from that point on with this coming. And it was a promise that was passed down from generation to generation. But as time went on, they were further and further removed from that promise. And up to this point in history, God had been silent for 400 years and their situation worsened. The people of Israel were living in struggle under Rome. They had no freedom. They had no land of their own. They didn't, they didn't even have their own ruler. Their king, King Herod, wasn't even a Jew, but was appointed by Rome. And that just further compounded their plight. All was not right with every passing generation. And they began to lose faith. And so when they heard this announcement, that the child born would be called Jesus, Jehovah saves. It awakens something in their hearts, something that was lost long ago in the past, hope. You can imagine that when people heard that this child would be called Yeshua, for he will save, it brought to mind the Joshua of the Old Testament, that this Jesus will be like the great military leader of old, the one that's conquered nations, the one that led our forefathers to the promised land. This Jesus was who they were waiting for, who they needed and who they would follow to glory. But imagine the shock when they, when they heard the words that followed. You will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. They were thinking, save his people from their sins. Don't you mean save his people from oppression? Save his people from Rome? Save his people from their enemies? See, they didn't understand that Jesus came not to save them from their greatest want, but to save them from their greatest need. We know the difference between what we want and what we need. Right? And we can all identify with the struggle, especially this time of year, of wants versus needs on our Christmas wish list or Amazon wish list. There are things that people want Jesus to save them from. They want Jesus to save them from a difficult boss, an unhappy marriage, loneliness, and sickness, and some sort of ailment and circumstances in life. He is the one they believe that will fill the void in their hearts and give them meaning and to make them happy. And those are all good things. And they're often the result of having a relationship with Jesus. But it's not what we need most. Israel wanted to be saved from their social political condition before Rome. But the problem 
was they actually needed to be saved from their sinful condition before God. And that's the issue with every one of us. And until we can understand that sin is our greatest need, we will never see the coming of Jesus and the Christmas story as good news. And really this is lost upon our world. We don't believe that we really need to be saved. Instead, we need to be helped. We don't need good news. We need good advice. We don't need the gospel. We just need 10 ways to have a better life and five steps to reduce stress. And that's our problem. We don't believe in the problem of sin. We have professing Christians saying that the people don't need to be told that they're sinners because they know they're sinners. And the reality is, no, they don't. They really don't. See, because they they look at the guy who beheads his victims and says, that's a sinner, not me. People don't sin in our culture. They they make mistakes. They have bad habits. They're victims of their environment. They, They say all these things, but no, they're not sinners. And yet the Bible says that they are children of wrath. And so were we. See, the grave situation of everyone in this room and in this world that we find ourselves in is that the infinite God of the universe created us and gave us breath and life and being that we might worship him and give him the glory that he deserves. But the problem is that we have belittled God. We have broken his law. We have set ourselves as sovereign over him. And without exception, we have sinned against an almighty God. And because he is holy and just, God will punish us for our sins in an eternal hell. We are enemies of God and we deserve his wrath as a result. And no amount of good works can save you because it is never enough before a perfect God. The in and of ourselves, we are hopeless. And that's our problem. And if you understand that, you understand that you don't need good advice. You need good news. And what is that good news? She will bear a son. His name is Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. This was the good news that the angel proclaims. We we were destined for judgment and in his great love, Jesus came into our world that Christmas day to die in our place that we might live. The penalty for sin was borne by the one who knew no sin. Jesus came as our substitute. That was his purpose in coming. See, what God would do is he would fashion and prepare a body for Jesus, his son to have, that he might dwell in, in order to offer up as a sacrifice for sin on our behalf. Jesus was born that Christmas day to die for you and me so that we would have eternal life. But because he is God, he rose again on the third day and he ascended to heaven and he now sits at the right hand of God. But here's the thing, Jesus returned to heaven far different than when he had left. For he goes back as God incarnate now. Jesus would be God and man from that first Christmas day for the rest of eternity, forever joined to his humanity. And one day as believers, 
we will see Jesus as he is with the scars in his hands and the scars in his feet, the wound in his side and his nail pierced body that he went back to heaven with is meant to be an emblem, a lasting memorial throughout all of eternity so that we would be forever reminded that is why Jesus came. And that is how much he loves me. His mission was to save us from our sins. This is why Christmas is truly wonderful. And not just for eternity, but for our present life and in the here and now, because see the Lord Jesus Christ conquered the great enemy of sin and defeats not only its penalty, but it defeats its power in our lives even now. And so what that means for you and I is that this Christmas season, we can be reminded that we have hope over sin in our lives. We can have healthy and flourishing marriages amidst the struggles. We can overcome anger and impatience with our children. We can conquer lust in our lives. We can be content in our singleness. We can love those difficult to love and we can forgive those who have hurt us. We can rejoice in whatever trial that we're going through. Why? Because his name is Jesus and he came to save his people from their sins. Fourth and lastly, we see here the coming of Christ. Look at verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew informs us that the events of Jesus's miraculous conception was a fulfillment of a promise made by God in the Old Testament. And specifically, he cites a prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. In Isaiah 7, King Ahaz is facing a threat from nations who might destroy the kingdom of Judah and as a result, end the kingly line that the Messiah, that the Christ was to come from. And so God makes a promise that nothing's going to happen to that line and that he will in fact preserve Israel and that the king will one day come as he had promised. And the Lord says that I'll even give you a sign regarding this promise. And this is a quote from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years later, Jesus came into the world, born of a virgin and fulfilled this prophecy given by Isaiah to Ahaz. He is the one foretold who would be the king, who would be a descendant of David and the seed of Abraham. This king would be God himself. And so fittingly, he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is a time of year that we celebrate the coming of the king into this world. God promised that he would send the Messiah and he kept his promise. Jesus would come, as you know, to save sinners. He in every way is God with us. And yet, in a sense, 
He is not with us. He, he is not. He came, died, and rose again, but he ascends to heaven as the risen God and king. See, Jesus is not currently here. But, but God, what he does is he makes another promise that he will come again. And it is on that day that Emmanuel, God with us, will be realized in its fullness. If we were to maybe see the Bible as a story or movie, the initial coming of our Lord would be part one of the trilogy. And the final installment of this trilogy is the return of the king. Jesus' death and resurrection isn't the end of the story. There is more. But the story of redemption that is traced in the Bible and is being fulfilled in history today, that story will come to an end. And it is marked by the climactic return of Christ. And scripture is not vague about this. A large portion of scripture is prophetic and a third or more of the prophetic passages, it refers to the second coming or events related to it. It is a major theme of both the Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. See, what I want to tell you guys is that history is barreling toward a conclusion. And that conclusion has already been ordained by God and foretold in scripture. We don't exactly know when, it could be soon or it could be another thousand years, but Christ will return. Understand Christmas is a time for us to remember the first coming of Christ, but it is also to point us to his second coming. God was faithful to fulfill his promise with the first coming of Christ. And it was meant to be, and it was meant to, to, to give us confidence and anticipation and expectation that he will likewise keep his promise regarding the second coming of Christ. See, Christmas is about both comings. I love what John Piper writes, and this is what he, he says. He says, quote, when Emmanuel comes, redemption has only begun, he says. To be sure, it is a magnificent only. The final blood is shed, the debt is paid, forgiveness is purchased, God's wrath is removed, adoption is secured, the future is sure, the joy is great, but the end is not yet. Because death still snatches away. Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes. Satan still prowls. Flesh still wards against the spirit. Sin still indwells. And we still groan awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We still wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We still wait for the hope of righteousness. The longing continues, end quote. This is the spirit of Christmas. And I was meditating on one of my favorite Christmas songs recently, and it's a song that we had a chance to sing this morning. And it's the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I really appreciate a verse that's found in this song. And it speaks to the coming of Jesus, both in his first and second advent. And this is what it says. O come, thou king of nations bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now with our prince of peace. 
Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come again with us to dwell. Those words are so fitting for what Christmas is about. It is the rejoicing of his coming, but it is a prayer for his coming again, for him to dwell with us again. And what's interesting is that many people note, when we sing that song as we did this morning, people know just how haunting the music is and how somber it is and how ominous of a sound that it has. And, and they ask, well, is this really appropriate to sing as a Christmas song? And I want to tell you, yes. Yes, it is. Because what we know is that Advent and the Christmas season isn't all jingle bells, deck the halls, and it's the most wonderful time of the year. We rejoice, yes, as believers, and we rejoice in the right reason that Jesus has already come, but we know that something is not yet complete. And as believers, that this weighs on us because we live in this tension of the already, but not yet. The sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. The inauguration of his kingdom and the consummation still to come the satisfaction in Christ alone and a dissatisfaction that he has not come back yet. So the Bible says we are to long. We are to long for his appearing in this way and because of this. And my question to you is, is that your heart this Christmas? Do you long for Jesus? we have to remember that this isn't our home. We don't live for this world. We shouldn't be so attached to the things of life here, to the here and now, to our possessions, to our earthly goals, because Jesus is coming again. And we need to pray that God will hasten the day in which Jesus comes and consummates all things. We know by experience, we live in a broken world. Pain is real and life is hard. And there are so many here and throughout the world that will find it hard to have joy this Christmas because something feels empty. But there will come a day amidst the suffering of this world where the heavens will split open and Jesus Christ will descend in power and glory and majesty. And he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And there he will establish his kingdom and he will rule with righteousness and justice and peace. And he will set all things right. And he will heal our broken world finally and fully. This is what we long for. And there's coming a day when he will do that. And Israel longed for it. The apostles longed for it. The church longed for it. Do you long for it? We should. And I believe that as Christians, we should even feel a, a twinge of sadness every Christmas, for we have lived another year without the return of our King. 
a twinge of sadness every night we go to bed for we have lived another day without his coming again. Maybe we aren't longing for his return because we're too easily pleased with what we have in the here and now. And yes, we thank God for the good life that we enjoy, but we don't allow for his gifts to distract you from Christ and from praying that prayer that we ought to pray all as believers. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Let's adore Christ this Christmas and let us again remember why he came and why he will come again. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day when you will come and we will recognize you because of the wounds you bear, which reminds us for all of eternity of your love that you have poured upon sinners. Lord, we celebrate this season, your coming to save us from our sins. And I pray, Lord, for those that don't know you this Christmas season, where they recognize, Lord, that amidst the brokenness and their sinfulness and the hopelessness that they might experience in life, that you came into this world to meet that. Would they understand, Lord, that you came into this world to save us from what we need most. You saved us from our sins because you loved us. Thank you, Lord, for the great promise that you will come again We pray that you would fill our hearts with the longing to see Jesus more. And yet in the meantime, keep us faithful and with the son of God shine brightly in our lives this Christmas season. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.